Uh, Bobby was a, was a young boy who, like a lot of his classmates, would hang out at the local candy shop, small town candy shop, after school each day. And uh, uh, Bobby was kind of a smaller boy, so some of the older and, and, and bigger boys took to kind of teasing Bobby. They'd, they'd tease him that he wasn't too bright. And, and one of the things they would do to make fun of him is, is uh, every day without fail, one of the boys would, would pull out a nickel and a dime, and they'd, they'd ask little Bobby, which do you want? Do you want the nickel or do you want the dime? And uh, Bobby would always say, well, the nickel's bigger. I'll take that one. And so they'd laugh at him and make fun of him for not being too bright. And the, the store owner watched this happen day after day after day. And finally, one day, he'd had enough. And, and after they had done the little nickel or dime thing and the older boys had left, the, the owner approached Bobby and he said, Bobby, do you realize that the boys are making fun of you? They, 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 they think you're, you're dumb because you always take the nickel. You, you do realize, don't you, that a dime is worth twice as much as a nickel. And uh, Bobby smiled and he said, yeah, but if I took the dime, they'd quit giving me money. <laughs> I mean, who knew such wisdom could come at such a young age? So in an effort to gain wisdom, we've been spending the last several weeks in the book of Proverbs, and specifically, we've been looking at what Solomon has to say about the paths that we choose in life. And this series has been kind of built on three basic principles. Let's see how you're doing with them. I'm going to say what the principle is, and we're going to see if you can fill in the blank. Sound good? If you're a guest today, don't worry. Um, we don't expect you to, to fill in the blank. The first principle that we've been uh, talking about is the principle of the path, which says your, your direction determines your destination. It's almost like a no-duh statement. Like, is this really like a principle that we need to spend time on? Well, well yeah, it is. Because sometimes we think that it's our hopes and our dreams and our education and our money and our good looks or, or whatever that's going to determine where we end up. But the reality is the only thing that determines where we end up is the direction in which we're heading. The, the series has also been built on what we've called the principle of focus, which says your, your attention determines your direction. That to which you pay attention is going to determine what direction you're going. So when I was learning to ride a motorcycle, one of the things they taught me is look where you want to go. Your bike is going to go where your eyes are. What you're paying attention to is the direction in which you'll go. And of course, your direction is going to determine your destination. The third choice, and we talked about this last week, or this third principle is the principle of choice. And that says you get to, you get to choose to what you pay attention. Things may capture your attention. Things may catch your attention. Things may, you know, golden apples may roll across your path seeking to distract you. But the principle of choice says you get to choose to what you give your attention. And of course, that matters because your attention determines your direction and your direction determines your destination. So kind of the underlying thought behind this whole series is that there are paths in life, and, and, and I did make that plural, there are paths in life that are worth being on, and that take us somewhere that, that we would want to go, and take us somewhere where God would want us to go. 
Now, we could certainly talk about the fact that there's one path, narrow is a path, that leads to heaven, and, and that path runs only through Jesus Christ. So there's, there's no confusion there. There's only one way to salvation. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the path. There's only one path when it comes to that. But within that, there's other paths, there's other things we can choose to do, other goals and dreams we can have in life that are God-glorifying. And that would be a good expression of how he's made us. And, and there's paths that are worth being on. And there's also paths that aren't. There's paths that would take us places we would pray we never ended up. There's paths that, um, no matter what we think about them, wouldn't glorify God. That wouldn't be the fullest expression of how he's created us and who he's created us to be. And so we've been talking about how do we avoid the, the lookalikes, the fake paths, and how do we make sure that we're on a path that takes us where God wants us to go, that gives him glory, and that allows us to be who he's made us to be. Today, though, I, I want us to think about a rather difficult question as it comes to these paths. What do we do when the destination we'd like to reach is unreachable? What do we do when, we, when we're on a path heading somewhere, we have a clear vision for it, we have a dream, we have a deep hope, but we come to the realization it's not going to happen. This path is not going to end up where I wanted it to. I cannot do this. What do we do when we're on a path with a destination that doesn't end where we want it to? This maybe isn't the, the feel-good idea that we'd like to have on a Sunday morning, but I would propose that this is real life. And I would, I would suggest, I would guess that most of us, if we're to be honest, would admit that there are some destinations in life that are unreachable. There are some dreams that we'll never accomplish. There are some hopes that will never come true. Some dreams just won't and some dreams can't. And some dreams shouldn't. What do we do when we encounter one like that? What, what do we do when we, find out, when we find out that because of some lifestyle choices, we're not going to end up where we hoped we would? That because of a single decision in our past, something is going to remain out of our reach for the rest of our lives. Whether it was our decision or a series of decisions, or whether it was a decision someone else made that forever impacted our lives and, and made a certain destination out of reach. What do we do? What do we do when we're to blame? When, when someone else is to blame? What do we do when there's no one to blame? I believe it was the, uh, I almost hate to say this, but the famed coach for the Green Bay Packers, um, Vince Lombardi. I believe it was Vince Lombardi who first said, we didn't lose, we just ran out of time. Which is what the Bears said a couple weeks ago when they played the Packers. But what do we do when our destination isn't unreachable, not because of something wrong we or someone else have done, but just because we ran out of time? Life doesn't, there's no timeouts in life. You don't get breaks at halftime. Time just keep marches on, and eventually we look around and go, it's not going to happen. It's not going to make it. It's not going to work. So what do we do? Of course, most of the times, 
when we begin to realize that a hope isn't going to happen, that a dream isn't going to come together, that this path that we thought we were on isn't going to end up where we hoped, it doesn't really matter why it happened. Most of the time, finding the reason, placing the blame doesn't do a bit of good. We're just stuck with the reality that we are where we are. And it, whatever it is, whatever that destination is for us, just isn't going to happen. Solomon, uh, the wisest man, Scripture says, to have ever lived, wasn't immune to the pain that comes with an unreachable destination. It's, it's on your notes here in about the middle of the first page. Notice what he wrote in Proverbs 13, 12. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. It's true, isn't it? An unreachable destination, hope deferred, a dream that can't or won't happen, makes the heart sick. And so what do we, what do, we do with that? What do we do with hope deferred? The first thing I would suggest that we need to do is we need to acknowledge the pain. Like Solomon, we need to be willing to say, my heart is sick. I can't stand this. I had hoped so much for that. We need to acknowledge the pain. I don't, know, I don't know why, but sometimes the church, those of us who are followers of Christ, have a tendency to deny that this kind of stuff happens to us, that this kind of stuff hurts. I can remember in a, a church I was in, somewhere between um, when I was youth pastor to Mary's kids and now, uh, I can remember a man at a, celebrating he and his wife's 60th wedding anniversary. And I can remember he stood up and he addressed the, the people who had gathered and he said, in 60 years of marriage, we've never had a bad day. And I'm thinking to myself, I know I'm young. But I'm going to call false. I'm going to call fake news on that. Like, how are you married 60 years? You've both survived cancer. You have kids and grandkids who have gone through some pretty traumatic stuff. You're kind of a bull in a china shop. How can you tell me that at least one of you hasn't had a bad day in 60 years? Psh, I'm buying it. But that's what we do. That's what we as followers of Christ have a tendency to do. We want to put on this face that says, everything's good. It's all good. Jesus is my Lord. Nothing's wrong. Why? We of all people, Christians, ought to be willing to say, this hurts. Worst day ever. Not, not because we want to have some like persecution complex, not because we want to be doom and gloom, but because of the reality of that upon which our faith is built. Remember, we only have faith because someone faced the worst day ever, perhaps the worst death ever, and then conquered death in the grave. And promised us there's coming a day when you're going to do the same. And what I have in store for you beyond this life is more than you can imagine. I mean, if our faith, if we really believe what we say we believe, that Jesus has conquered death and the grave and sin and all that, then we should have no problem saying this is hard. This is tough. I feel like a lifelong dream has been ripped away and I don't know what I'm going to do. Why can't we do that? I think it's because too many times we're afraid that 
if we acknowledge that, that losing a dream hurt, if we acknowledge that something was painful, we're going to become angry and bitter, and we know we shouldn't be that, but we don't have to be. As a matter of fact, the examples through Scripture tell us time and time again, you can face hard stuff, you can admit that it hurts, but you don't have to become angry and bitter. Think of Joseph. He was about 17. He literally had a dream. I mean, not like a figurative dream, but literally he dreamt that his brother and, and brothers and father would one day bow down to him. Incredible dream. And then his brother sold him into slavery. And, and then he was uh, falsely accused of, of uh, sexual advances against his boss's wife. And he was thrown in jail for years. And even, even hatched a plan uh, to have a couple of high ruling officials in the government get him out and they promised they would and they didn't. And, and do you think Joseph sat there and got angry and bitter? Well, no. I mean, think of Daniel. He was about the, about the same age, 17, when, when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians marched into Jerusalem, put him in handcuffs, he and a, and a bunch of guys his age, and hauled him from Jerusalem across the Middle East the capital of Babylon. I mean, if anybody had any, any reason to be angry and bitter, it was Daniel. These were, these, were, these were tough times, and yet Daniel didn't get bitter. He didn't get angry. He continued to serve the Lord. I mean, we could, we could march on and on through Scripture. King David, one day word came to him that, that his infant son was going to die. And it didn't matter how the son was conceived. That was still his son. And when he got the news that his baby boy was going to die, what did, what did David do? He owned up to it. He said, this hurts. And he fasted. He refused to eat. His advisors would come to him and say, David, you got to take food. You got to take drink. And David would say, I would not eat or drink until God's will is done with this, this, this baby. He owned up to it. He acknowledged that it hurt. The Apostle Paul, he had some kind of disease. We don't know what it is. He just says, uh, I've got this thorn in the flesh. Maybe it was epilepsy. Um, maybe he had like bad knees. Uh, he, he certainly had poor eyesight. We don't know what this thorn in the flesh was, but it was severe enough that he would mention it in his writings and he would continue to struggle with it through his whole life. We don't, we don't know why, we don't know what it was, but we know his heart was sick over it. See, I think sometimes we, we don't want to acknowledge the pain because we're afraid we'll get angry and bitter, but we don't have to. As a matter of fact, if you want to guarantee that you're going to become angry and bitter about something, just live in denial. Just pretend that it didn't happen. Just act like it didn't really hurt. See, Jesus said it like this, blessed are those who mourn, and what is mourning? Mourning is getting what's on the inside out. It's saying, this hurts. I'm alone. I feel like everything good that's ever happened to me has been ripped away. He said, blessed are those who mourn, who get what's on the outside. I mean, get what's on the inside out. Because they're the ones that will be comforted. And so if you want to make sure that you can become angry and bitter, don't do that. Don't mourn. Don't acknowledge the pain. Keep it inside. Pretend like it didn't happen or like it, like it didn't hurt. But if you want to be wise, and if you want to walk a path that's going to take you somewhere that God wants you to go, even if it's not your hope for destination, 
do what Solomon does here. He acknowledges this hurts. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Acknowledge the pain. That's the first step on the path towards getting better, towards recovering, towards finding what God still has left for you. The next step, the next step on that path is to pray fervently. Acknowledge the pain and then pray fervently. I mentioned Paul earlier. Notice how Paul dealt with his hope deferred. As a matter of fact, I mentioned the, the, the thorn in the flesh. Uh, it's from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Let's just read a few verses from there, starting at verse 7. I believe we're going to put this on the screen. To keep me from becoming conceited, because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it from me. Something happened in Paul's life. Again, we don't know what it is, but he realized that his hope of taking the gospel to the Roman Empire so it could, I mean, to the Roman capital so it could spread through the empire wasn't going to happen the way that he wanted it to. He had this, this, this thorn in the flesh, this tormentor. He said, three times I pleaded with God, take this from me. And this wasn't some nice, polite Sunday school or small group prayer. This wasn't, oh, dear Heavenly Father, Paul's in pain. Would you, would you please take it from him or, or, or would you help him to deal with it? Amen. Paul says, I pleaded, God, take this from me. This hurts. I can't do what you put me here to do. Mercy, Father, mercy, please take this away. I don't know how you feel about prayers of that intense honesty. To be honest, what, doesn't, what bothers me isn't that Paul would pray that honestly, or even more so. But that God would hear a fervent prayer like that and would still be disinclined to acquiesce. Notice, notice what, what, uh, how Paul continues in verse 9. God's response to Paul's prayer, his fervent prayer, God says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And I'm going, time out. When the apostle Paul prays, the guy who wrote a third of our New Testament, the guy who made us hearing about the gospel possible, I would think when that dude prays three times fervently, that God would hear him and say, yeah, no problem. Thorn's gone. But God doesn't. God hears his fervent prayer and says, sorry, Paul. That's just not going to happen. But my grace can be and will be sufficient for you. You see, we got to pray fervently. But I would suggest we don't do it in a way that makes us think that God is obligated to answer our prayer in the way that we want. He's not always going to restore our hope. He's not always going to make our dream come true. I mean, you've heard it said before, God always answers prayer. Sometimes yes, sometimes no, and sometimes you don't understand what I'm doing right now, but later you will. I mean, you've, you've heard something like that before. 
We've got to pray fervently when we realize that, that a path isn't going to go where we want it to, that, that a dream isn't going to happen, that a, that a vision isn't going to come to fruition. But when we do it, we've got to be willing to accept God's answer and find the good in it. See, God's answer to Paul was no, but my grace is sufficient for you. And are we willing to accept what answer God would give us and then to find the good in it. You see, there's always good when God answers prayer. And if we're willing to accept his answer as the best answer and as what's good for us, we'll have a different perspective. And that's not some kind of wishy-washy, self-help, feel-good stuff. I mean, this is what Scripture teaches. You may be familiar with Romans 8.28, and we know that in all things... God always works together for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. Scripture teaches God always works for our good. doesn't mean we always like it. doesn't mean that it always feels good. But we can take it to the bank because the Bible says it. If I'm praying about it, God's working for my good. Last Sunday in small group, I had a brief conversation with Emily Gephardt. She, uh, she was able to come to small group with her daughters and, and their adopted son, Caspian. You, uh, if you're part of our church, you know we've been praying for them. They adopted a son from China. And, uh, and as we were talking, I asked how he was doing and how he was adjusting. And part of being a 13, 14-month-old and, and being adopted from China into a new family means you have a boatload of immunizations to get caught up on. And apparently Caspian does. And so I asked Emily, I said, like, how's he doing with that? And she's like, well, I'm not going to lie. Um, he doesn't like it. I mean, who does, really? Like, yeah, I'm, I have a free day today. I'm going to go get some shots. I mean, nobody likes shots, and Caspian's no exception. She said he doesn't like it, but he's got to do it. Now, this isn't some kind of mean-spirited mom saying, I want my, my son to, to experience pain. It's a healthy parent who says there's good on the other side of these immunizations. And we're going to get into that good, even though there's going to be pain before the good. And this is the same truth about God and us. He knows the good for us. He is working for our good. Sometimes that just means there's some pain to move through before we get to the good. So we've got to be willing to pray fervently and, and then to accept whatever answer God gives us and accept it as good and, and see the good in it. Again, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. I would say more than just finding the good and whatever God's answer is. Number four, we need to allow God's glory to shine through our brokenness. We've got to allow God's glory to shine through our brokenness. Notice what Paul, how Paul continues in 2 Corinthians 12, uh, second half of verse 9. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Paul's saying, I'm broken. I'm not going to hide it. I'm going to boast about it. I'm going to celebrate the fact that I'm a weak, flawed human being with pains and brokenness and a thorn in the flesh, and I'm going to do it 
because that's how Christ's power rests on me. Verse 10, that is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This isn't some kind of Jedi mind trick. Paul's saying strength, God's strength, the strength I really want is only perfected when I allow God's glory to shine through my weakness, my brokenness, my messed up stuff. And so if we're going to embrace these paths, if we're going to travel these paths that lead where we don't want them to go, we've got to be willing to say, I'm going to let God's glory shine through. Paul said he prayed fervently three times that God would take away this thorn. Has it ever occurred to you that Paul wasn't the only one who prayed fervently three times that his destination would change? Go back to the the Garden of Olives. On the night before he was crucified, Matthew wrote that three times Jesus prayed, Father, I don't like this path I'm on. I don't like where it ends up. I want to be done. Matthew 26, 39, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. I don't want to die. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Just a couple verses later, verse 42, My Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. And then the third prayer, My Father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. See, Jesus was willing to embrace the notion that his desire to accomplish what God wanted to and escape death, he was willing to embrace the notion that that wasn't going to happen. That his hope, his desire, his longing was going to be deferred. And that through that, God's glory was going to shine. Now, in this case, God's glory was the salvation of all mankind. That may not be the same way that God's glory shines through you. Matter of fact, it probably won't be. No, no, it definitely won't be. That happened one time. But Jesus was willing to embrace it. And eventually, he saw God's answer as good. Matter of fact, Paul writes it like this in Philippians 2. He did, not, he, did, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he took on human form, was found in appearance as a, as a man, and he humbled himself, and he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow on heaven, on earth, and under the earth. That's everything, everyone, every being. Every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. You see, Jesus was in that garden with a hope that he could escape this. And his father said, no, you're going to drink this cup. But when it was all said and done, it worked out for his good. It worked out for Jesus' good, for God's glory. Again, Solomon said, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. For, for our Lord and Savior, for Jesus Christ, for the one that we say we're an imitator of, his hope was deferred till after death, till after his resurrection. Beloved, 
That's true for some of us too. For some of us, the destination that we've longed for, the hope we've had, the thing for which we pray night and day, it's going to remain deferred until after our death and resurrection. Some of us will go to our grave not realizing that for which we've hoped. But there's coming a day when a new heaven and a new earth will be revealed. And at the middle of this new heaven, John describes it, will be the tree of life. And we'll gather around the tree of life. And he says the fruit on the tree of life will be for the healing of the nations. And as we eat from the tree of life, all this hope, all these plans, all these wishes, all these prayer requests, all these longings that we died and they were in a state of deferral will be fulfilled. And our heart will be happy. That's true for some of us, maybe for all of us, for some of our hopes. But it's not always true. There are times when our hope is deferred only for a season. And then later, God says, here you go. Here it is. Here's the fulfillment for which you've been longing. And when that happens, number five, tell people about how God moved your stone Tell people about how God moved your stone. Throughout the Old Testament, uh, Pastor Joel reminded us in his last series, people constantly built altars. They would come to a space and God would, God would fulfill their hope. And so they would take stones and they would build an altar. And you can almost imagine it, like, like right there. That's where we walked off the ark. Like for hundreds of years, we built this ark because God told us to. And then for 40 days and nights, we, after, the, after the, the water receded, we waited for God to open the door, not even sure if this was a cruel joke and if we were going to get off this ark or not. But as soon as the door opened and we walked out, we built that altar. Or you could imagine Abraham saying, God told me to sacrifice my son. And so we built the altar to obey God. And I didn't want to kill Isaac. I didn't want to do it. He was the only child of hope. And as I, just as I was ready to obey, the angel of the Lord stopped me and said, don't do it. Don't do it. Here, sacrifice this ram instead. And, and so oh, my longing was fulfilled and I get to keep my Isaac. You can almost imagine Someone saying, you see that altar made from 12 rocks? The patriarch of each tribe picked up a rock from the middle of the Jordan River when we crossed. No, no, so you don't understand. For 40 years, we wandered around asking, were we ever going to get to see this land that God had ripped us out of Egypt to take us to? And when that Jordan parted and we were crossing into the promised land, we picked up those stones to build that altar. When our oldest 
daughter was a year old, um, Sarah and I began to hope again for another child. And uh, soon enough, uh, Sarah became pregnant. And uh, we were so excited. But partway into that pregnancy, uh, she miscarried. And that was like 14 years ago. Um, But I can still remember the pain. I can still remember the pain of a pregnancy that no one had even seen evidence of yet, but we knew, gone. No body. We, we weren't able to take a stone and set it on a grave somewhere and write a name on it and, and acknowledge our grief. It just couldn't happen. I re, and I remember all of that hope instantly deferred. And just because there was no body and no, no tombstone didn't mean the, that there was no grief. And I can remember the day we finally decided that we're going to get a helium balloon and we're going to write a name on that balloon. And the three of us, Sarah and I and, and our oldest daughter, Amy, we're going to have our own little funeral service. and We're going to launch this balloon. And we watched that balloon you know, rise into the sky. And, and I can remember the sense of peace that came as that balloon lifted off. But still this like, I guess that dream's over. Maybe we'll just be a single child family. And then I remember the joy not too many months later when we found out Sarah was pregnant again. I remember praying and hoping, and I'd say fasting, but you all know that's not true. And just hoping that this one, that she could carry it to term. And and then on December 28th, 2004, our daughter was born and, and Anna became one of the stones in our altar where we say, Our hope was deferred for a while, but not forever. Our God is good. There's more to the story. I had two daughters, and they're wonderful. Great daughters, but I always wanted a son. And so when the time came, we started trying again. But it wasn't happening. So long story short, it came down to this. Something in my body had shifted, and uh, the doctor... It was like he rolled the the stone in front of my tomb when he said, (laughs) without surgery, (laughs) there's not going to be any Earl Juniors running around. I thought, well, that's that. Thank God for two wonderful daughters. We'll just enjoy being a four-person family. And I can still remember the uh, Wednesday night. We were sitting in the basement of the parsonage where I was pastor. I was eating some uh, Cheez-Its, not that you need to know this, um, a kind that Sarah usually liked, but she looked at me, she said, put those things away, they're making me sick. And being the sensitive guy that I am, I said, what, are you pregnant or something? (laughs) And she went, well, I've been wondering. I said, what are we doing? Pause the TV. I'm going to drive to CVS. I'm getting a pregnancy test, and we're going to find out. And sure enough, nine months later, Zeke was born. And yet again, we had a reminder that hope doesn't stay deferred forever. And so some of you have experienced hope deferred. Are you telling people about the time when God moved that stone? 
Do you have things you can point to and say, it may hurt now, but the the sorrow's only going to last for a while. There will be joy. Your hope will not remain deferred forever. We're going to, uh, we're going to close in song today. And, and here's the deal. I, I don't know where you're at. And, and, and you may think this seems like, I don't, I don't know what you think. But what I want to invite you to do is I want you to, to come as we sing. I want you to grab a rock, and there's markers over there. And just as a testimony of God's faithfulness, as a reminder that a hope Deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. I want you to write on your rock some way you've seen God fulfill your hope that you thought was deferred. We're going to sing. I'm going to invite you just to come and do that. And then take the rock with you. Put it somewhere. Put it on your desk, kitchen counter, wherever, as a reminder that hope doesn't remain deferred forever. Your path may seem unreachable, but one day your longing will be fulfilled.
first verse and chorus one more time. Let me just say this. Some of you are praying for things now and you just hope God will answer your prayer before you die. And whether or not you came to get a rock to remember a time when your hope had been deferred and then your longing was fulfilled, I want to invite you as we sing this last time, if you've got, if you've got a hope that's on deferral, come and get a rock. You don't have to write on it, but come and take a rock, something to hold on to, to remind you that God still moves stones, that one day this thing that you think hurts so much and will never come to pass, one day it's going to make sense. And it'll fill your heart with joy. We're going to sing one more time. If you'd like to come, do it, and then I'm going to close in prayer. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, Thou hast taught me to say, it is. that Solomon would be willing to tell it like it is that sometimes hope deferred makes our heart sick but sometimes and one time there will be a tree of life that brings us great joy so Father I pray for my brothers and sisters who would say I've got hope on deferral Father, would you help them to continue to pray, to hear your response, to allow your glory to shine through their brokenness? And would you remind them of other hopes that you've answered, other prayers, other desires that have been fulfilled so that hope isn't lost, so that together we can continue to walk a path that glorifies you and takes us and makes us more in the image of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray this for your glory and for our satisfaction in you. Amen. I'm going to ask you please to stand, and we'd like to bless one another. For those of you who are visiting with us today, uh, at the end of the blessing, if you would just join the congregation saying, and also to you in that way as brothers and sisters in Christ, we'll bless one another. May you acknowledge the hurt of hope deferred.
May you experience the joy of a longing fulfilled. And may the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit give you peace.